Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks to Ali Safar about COP27 and electricity in the Middle East. I then continue the conversation with Will and John about what subsidies and electricity reform could possibly look like across the region. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Alia Safar is the program manager for the Middle East and North Africa region at the International Energy Agency. He's been there for more than a decade. Ali, thanks very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you very much for having me, John. As we look forward to COP27 coming up in Egypt in a little more than a week, the big international climate conference, what are the most interesting things you're hearing now about Middle Eastern energy? I would say there are two dynamics that are particularly interesting. On the one hand, because of the Russian invasion on Ukraine, energy security is higher up the agenda than it probably has been for a number of years. A lot of people are worried about supply. A lot of people are worried about prices. And it's kind of catapulted the region to its natural position, at least its natural position over the last few decades, which is as as being a really integral part of the global energy system. I think that has been forgotten to one degree or another. And the second dynamic that I'd like to highlight is the longer term, with many countries in the region trying to focus on what it looks like to transition away from fossil fuels. In the oil and gas exporters of the region who've made masses amount of, of revenue and who've relied on revenues from oil and gas for decades to finance their economies, You know, they're looking to see if they can kind of remain at the forefront of global energy supply by moving towards low carbon energy. And I think there's a number of things that one could point to to kind of evidence that. The first is the region has consistently obtained some of the lowest prices in the world for renewables auctions, really, really low prices for solar. And the other is how to add value or to kind of get beyond electricity as well. And here I'd like to highlight the efforts of Gulf producers and also Egypt on trying to make some progress on clean hydrogen or low carbon hydrogen, what people would refer to as green hydrogen. So these are the two dynamics I would probably highlight as being particularly interesting in the region. Is the export of electricity a realistic option for Middle Eastern states, especially at the scale at which they're exporting hydrocarbons? And who do they export to? Electricity at this point, it would be just small bits of cross-border trade between neighboring countries. There are existing grids that link countries. There's, for example, the GCCIA, the Gulf Cooperation Council Interconnection Authority, and that links the six Gulf states. And that's supposed to be an exchange. It's not really supposed to be the infrastructure for the export and import, so to speak, of one party exporting, one party importing. It's more an exchange of electricity to increase the resilience across the region. And that's only tiny amounts of electricity. So the last number I had seen was that the interconnection authority was trading something like 5% of its capacity to trickle. But even in an instance where, let's say, some Gulf producers or North African producers of electricity, of renewable electricity, could export for longer distances, it would be difficult to see any sort of replacement of oil revenue in that fashion. 
one of the things we've talked about is you say that there are countries in the Middle East that don't have enough electricity, countries like Lebanon and Iraq, and countries in the Middle East that have too much electricity, like Egypt and Jordan. How does it happen that you have too much electricity and having too much electricity? Why is that a problem? So incidentally, Jordan and Egypt both did the exact same thing. They reached this point because of the same issue. Around the middle of the last decade, both countries were basically facing the specter of a deficit. So blackouts, shortages, the kinds of things that makes the citizenry very, very angry. And so they both moved very quickly to try to close that deficit by essentially contracting with power producers, and they overshot. So beyond just meeting demand and then having some contingency on the top of that, they both have overcapacity. Now, that's less of a problem than having undercapacity because you're not facing blackouts and you're not facing angry citizens. But as long as you have a big overproduction, you're not going to be thinking too much about investing in new infrastructure. And the reason this is an issue is because you do need this kind of renewal in infrastructure. You need to kind of keep moving with the times. And and that doesn't necessarily happen if there's no market for it. And then on the other end of that equation, the countries that are producing too little electricity, in the case of, let's say, Syria and Iraq, that's probably primarily due to a loss of physical infrastructure wars. But also in the case of Iraq, certainly, and Lebanon, as a result of really quite bad mismanagement of the sector, profound levels of corruption and mismanagement of the way the sector is run. Investment in parts, I mean, in the case of Iraq, they've invested billions of dollars in generation, but it's the transmission and distribution sectors that are among the worst in the world. And so you get this situation where it can produce electricity, but it can't really send it to the people who would be using it. What is the overproduction of electricity mean for the market for renewables in these countries? And what does the production of renewables mean for the ability to export energy to other countries? If a country already has capacity far in excess of what it requires, then it won't need to be investing very much in the production of electricity. Now, that's fine if you're happy with the existing power mix, the generation mix. But often what happens in countries, in all countries, is that you have a diversified power mix. You might have some low efficiency gas turbines. You might have some high efficiency gas turbines as you do in Egypt. And then on top of that, you have some variable renewables like solar or wind. And if no investment is made because the capacity is already there, then some of these low efficiency generators continue in the system because they're not really being pushed out. So it's difficult to incentivize an investment in greater renewables uptake because of the fact that you already have an overcapacity. And so for countries like Egypt or Jordan, you essentially have three options. The first is to try to stimulate demand at home. And the way you would do that is by either electrifying end-use sectors, trying to see ways that industry can be electrified Or, of course, if you stimulate the demand in electric vehicles, then you consume more electricity. The second option is to export. And Egypt and Jordan and several other countries in the region are looking at interconnecting far beyond their borders. Egypt has signed an agreement with Cyprus and Greece, and I think work is about to start imminently on that interconnection. It's already signed an agreement with Saudi Arabia. There's an agreement between Egypt, Jordan and Iraq, essentially helping to export some of that excess. 
And the third is just to live with what you have and therefore live in a basically suboptimal system. How much is seasonal demand a challenge for regional electricity? Because so much of the electricity use is for cooling in the summers and Middle Eastern summers are getting longer and hotter. How much of a problem do you have when your electricity demand fluctuates with the seasons, but you have a plant that exists year round? It's a really good question, John, and I think this is one of the top issues for people planning electricity sectors in the region. For some producers in the Gulf, there's a lot of investment going into power plants that are running only for several months a year. And that's not really a good use of money. So there's a lot that countries can do to try to alleviate that. And that's where trading can really be a more efficient use of infrastructure spending because different countries will have peaks at different times. You know, they could use basically the same generating infrastructure to spread the electricity as it's needed across the region. The other thing that countries can do, which is not that interesting a topic for many, is basically just implement demand-side measures. Demand-side measures could include investments in efficiency. We're looking at some of these studies done on buildings, for example, in Iraq. And just the simple act of insulating a building properly can reduce the consumption in a building by 60 or 70 percent and even upward of that. If you do that, then you're saving yourself a lot of capacity in electricity that won't be used for most of the year. And so it's really about determining where to spend the dollar of investment for the greatest return. So you said that partly there are some demand side issues, but trading and having more of a regional grid could also make a big difference. The United States has had a profound problem creating a genuine national grid. Should we be more optimistic that the Middle East will be more successful? Or what can the Middle East learn from the difficulties in the United States that would make it more possible to really have a regional grid? So, John, some of the issues that you face in the U.S. is the fact that you're almost a victim of your own success. The U.S. was one of the earliest adopters of electricity. And so a lot of the transmission lines that were built, you know, they were built at a time when there was no kind of centralized vision for a market. In the Middle East and North Africa, they start at a different point. A lot of the infrastructure is existing, the interconnecting is available, but they face a very different issue, which is not so much the physical infrastructure, but rather the regulatory infrastructure. These things are not that easy to manage. They require a lot of goodwill exchange, a lot of agreements being signed between countries that aren't necessarily politically that close to one another. And one of the real elements here is, as you know, energy price subsidies are a big issue in the region. And so if you have one country that has an effective subsidy rate that's higher than another, then effectively one country could be asked to subsidize the other if they're trading at a rate that's unfavorable to the first. And so harmonizing these regulations, harmonizing the prices, would go a long way towards offsetting some of these issues. But it is the ultimate end goal, especially in a decarbonizing electricity sector, because effectively, when you're trying to invest a lot in renewable electricity, 
beyond a certain point, it starts to become quite difficult to manage because it requires a much more flexible grid. It requires more investment in grid infrastructure. And if there are exchanges between countries that can help manage the peaks in demand, but also the peaks and troughs in supply, because there's a variability element in solar, for example, then that makes for a much more stable, much more efficient system for all. How hard are these systems to maintain if you really set up a robust regional grid? And how vulnerable would systems be to sabotage? Well, on the issue of sabotage, they're no more or no less at risk than the existing infrastructure. Effectively, it's the same. And so the protecting that infrastructure is probably already a known quantity to many countries. This is the gas pipelines and oil pipelines that run through the region. And the transmission pipelines. I mean, you know, these effectively look no different. And so I wouldn't say that that's the prohibitive part of it. But, you know, doing this could help rationalize a lot of the investments that are made and could help rationalize a lot of the way energy is produced and consumed in the region, probably for the benefit of all. I mean, you create these codependencies that theoretically should lead to better political decision making. It's not always the case. But generally speaking, there are instances where you just look at kind of the energy map and think this exchange makes absolute sense, whether it's in electricity or natural gas or in the industrial use of oil and gas. Just to show you the level of inefficiency in Iraq, they flare around 18 billion cubic meters of natural gas per year. 18 billion cubic meters has a market value right now in Europe of around $18 billion. There isn't huge technical reasons why this gas should not be captured and then used domestically in an electricity system that is not producing enough electricity for its people. But investments need to be made. And so one of the stopgap measures that could happen is some of this gas could be captured. And rather than do the costly part in Iraq, which is to process it and then separate the elements that would be useful for electricity generation, they could pipe this really, really easily to Kuwait, which does have capacity to process this gas. And what that would mean is Iraq would be getting some of this gas back from Kuwait in its processed form for electricity consumption, while Kuwait would be getting the ethane, which is a very valuable part of the gas stream that is used in industry that they need for their huge petrochemical sector. Now, if they were to do this, A, the project could happen much quicker than if Iraq developed all the infrastructure domestically. And B, it would create a value for even the ethane component of natural gas, which Iraq is not really making much use of right now. So to me, looking at these things at at least the theoretical level, it's a no-brainer. It should happen. And it would create a codependency that would probably lead to much more efficient use of gas, energy, and also political ties. As you think about energy broadly and think about electricity as part of that, one part of that equation is the move away from hydrocarbons. Is there enough future in the use of hydrocarbons 20 years, 30 years, 40 years into the future to justify creating hydrocarbon-dependent infrastructure right now? So this is the million-dollar question, John. And under the current trajectory that the world is moving in, one could argue for that. It doesn't look like there's going to be a massive decrease in hydrocarbons demand going forward 
if the policies that are in place today do not significantly change. However, and bringing this back to your question on COP27, we know because the scientists have told us that we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions considerably, starting almost immediately. And there's no way that this can be done without a drastic change to the way we both produce and consume energy. And in the scenarios that we've done at the IEA, it's very difficult to envision this kind of a pathway without a drastic decrease in the demand for oil, gas, and coal. And given the fact that these investments are made for a period of 20, 25, or 30 years, it's difficult to see that being justified. However, having said that, even in a world where, let's say, the net zero emissions trajectory was reached, the demand for oil and gas, it's not going to be binary. It's not going to exist one day and then stop the next. There's going to be a curve. And when you look at the region, there's strong arguments to suggest that this region will be important even in the energy transition for the simple reason that the cost of extracting the oil and gas is lower than most other places. And if demand is diminishing, then people will become more attentive to cost because of the fact that the prices decline. And the second reason is because not all oil and gas are created equally. If you produce from one country, it might have a completely different greenhouse gas emissions intensity than in another region. And if you're looking at best performing Gulf producers, let's say the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, the greenhouse gas intensity for a barrel of oil produced is around half the world average. And so in a carbon constrained world, one would imagine that these guys produce the last barrel, even just if you're taking that into consideration, the greenhouse gas intensity of that produced barrel. So I think it's going to remain an important consideration well into the future. However, anybody who's covered the region, who's worked on things like economic diversification, any transition, whether it's energy or economy, can take decades. And I think it's really, really important for countries looking to do the energy transitions in the region to start now, because there's really no time to lose. As we think to this energy transition and we think about the world's move away from fossil fuels, are the Middle East's supply of sun and wind likely to keep the Middle East as the world's largest energy producer? Can they use green hydrogen or something else to remain central to the world, the export of electricity? Or does the rise of renewables in the Middle East just slow the diversification of energy production from the Middle East to local production everywhere in the world? So I would say there's two parts to the answer to this question. On green hydrogen, Given the fact that you know countries in the region have had multiple decades of experience in infrastructure development, engineering, management know-how in the upstream sector, in oil and gas, a lot of these skills and supply chains can quite easily be reoriented towards the establishment of a hydrogen sector. So if they are able to do this, then they can be at the forefront of these kind of more nascent low carbon technologies. And there are countries really taking quite aggressive steps today to ensure that. But it's as you said, because of the geographical spread of renewables, that doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're going to swap out one dependence for another. Because if you look at countries with hydrogen plans, the, the geographical variation is vast. It goes from Chile to Namibia to Australia, and of course, the Middle East and North Africa. And so that is a huge geographical spread. 
But one thing I would also want to say with regards to this kind of industrialization through pursuing green hydrogen and the clean energy sector is think about the counterfactual. Imagine a world, John, where oil production, oil demand falls precipitously as it kind of must if we are to reach our climate targets. If oil demand falls as drastically as it needs to, and therefore oil prices fall in conjunction with that, then countries who haven't diversified their economies would see a huge fall in their revenues. And we got a glimpse of what that looks like in 2020. And if that were to be structural in the absence of really massive diversification, you're looking at one of the youngest, one of the fastest growing regions in the world with very little revenue. That would become a problem for all. You know, and I'm not saying that there'd be political and social upheaval across every producer in the Middle East and North Africa, but certainly some of the fiscally weaker ones would be the first to fall. And that would create all sorts of ruptures. So the thing that I like to focus on in my work and the thing that I'm really insistent on is, yes, the energy transitions is something that we really absolutely have to keep front and center of our minds as policymakers, but we also need in tandem with that, to find solutions or help countries find solutions for themselves to ensure that if their revenues fall because of the transitions, that they're not left wanting. So merging these key imperatives and making sure that the economic diversification is done in tandem with the energy transition is, I think, one of the only ways that that can happen. Alia Safar from the International Energy Agency. Thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you very much, John. John and Will, it's really great to be back with you again for another tabletop. Good to see you again, Lubna. Hi, Lubna. John, this week you spoke to Ali Al-Safar from the IEA. So he mentioned how there are major obstacles for making the electric grid across the region more connected. And he thinks that it's because in the Middle East, there are different subsidies. What do subsidies for electricity around the region look like? Well, there are different kinds of subsidies. There are the subsidies from wealthier countries that have made their citizens feel that practically free electricity is a birthright. There are subsidies from poorer countries that are meant to provide a safety net for poorer citizens, but how the subsidies work, how they're differentiated, what the cost of electricity is in different places. And this is true not just in electricity, they've subsidized often natural gas for cooking, they subsidize gasoline, they subsidize food products. But there are lots of, of these kinds of subsidies, as I say, sometimes intended as social welfare sometimes really just, frankly, market distortions, where you have wealthier people consuming more of the subsidized goods than poorer people, and how you bring the region together. If you're going to have a genuine regional trade, how you coordinate how much people price things at affects how the markets work. And the governments across the Middle East are really involved in markets for lots of different things, sometimes different markets for different things, and sometimes different levels of subsidies for different things. 
maybe to speak up for subsidies at the start of this conversation, because I imagine we'll be talking mostly about how to remove them. But I think it is really important to remember just how many people rely on subsidies across the region for goods and services that are really essential for their daily lives. So looking at food subsidies, often the things that are subsidized are are real staples. We're talking bread, cooking oil, rice, flour, things like that. And this is a way for very poor families to be able to afford what they need to get by. Of course, as John said, a problem, especially in poorer countries, is that these are not targeted at all. Everyone can benefit from subsidized prices. And there are very wealthy people who consume a lot more, whether that's a lot more electricity, maybe, maybe they, you know, have even higher consumption of food, and so benefit disproportionately when they don't actually need it. So it's quite a crude tool, I think, for governments, but is often easier from a bureaucratic perspective than a more targeted approach that will make sure that it actually reaches you know, the people who truly need it. Well, what the economists often want to do is they want to give cash transfers directly to the poor. And Egypt is moving more in the direction of doing that. I think a lot of countries in the region are looking toward doing it. The disadvantages you run to situations like you have, especially in the Gulf, where you've had remarkably quick increases in electricity consumption because electricity is almost free. And one of the things that, that the UAE was talking about doing is differentiating the price for things like electricity between citizens and expatriates and say, we will subsidize for citizens, but for the expatriates, that just creates a market distortion. And since 90% of the people who live in the UAE are expatriates, you can actually do a lot to change the way the markets work by removing subsidies from 90% of the population that doesn't have UAE citizenship. But what an economist would say is that's what the market takes care of. You have to pay more wages because you're not subsidizing electricity anymore. And that's an interesting point to bring up against the backdrop of the energy transition, as many of these states are encouraged to shift or start considering shifting from hydrocarbons to cleaner energy. How might that relationship change as states lose revenues and are forced to move away from the use of heavy subsidies? Well, as you were talking to people about renewable energy in Libya over the last month, one of the things you found is it's very hard to make renewable energy attractive because there aren't any financial incentives because there's really no market for electricity. There's an assumption that the electricity will be provided essentially for free. And so you can't have a comparative cost advantage to renewables because the traditional forms of electricity are so heavily subsidized. I think as as we look globally at the adoption of renewables, part of the equation is renewables have to come down in cost because they have to be price competitive, but there has to be an actual price. And if hydrocarbons are so systematically and fundamentally subsidized, then the cost of renewables can never reach a price where it becomes financially attractive. You can't grow any investment into it because the government is busy bolstering the old system. If we go back to Iraq, an interesting thing about electricity usage in in Iraq is just the different levels of subsidies that are involved. So on one level, when the state provides electricity, that service is, is heavily subsidized. And I should say that there are really very shocking examples of 
people using electricity in an extremely wasteful way because it is so extremely cheap. It's basically free for a lot of people. But at the same time, also important to recognize that Iraqis don't get power for almost half the day, or most Iraqis don't, and have to turn to alternative sources. Most of those sources are diesel generators, often neighborhood-level diesel generators. Now, those run on diesel that is also heavily subsidized by the state. So even though the state isn't providing electricity, they're still subsidizing, effectively, electricity generation from the private sector, essentially. And there are people who make a huge amount of, of money from this. And one of the sort of strange things about electricity consumption in Iraq when it comes to subsidies is that Iraqis, I think, view these different sources of electricity very differently. The subsidized electricity they view as basically free and they're right, and they will consume a lot when it's available, but they are paying for alternatives. They have to pay quite a lot to these generators. So you would think from a you know, economic perspective, that there is an incentive there for them to shift towards renewable sources that are cheaper, that would benefit the government, because the government would then have to pay less to subsidize the diesel. And yet still, there is this sort of cultural aversion, and I'm generalizing here, but I think on the whole, a lot of Iraqis do think, why should we invest in alternatives and non-hydrocarbon alternatives, when we live in the country with the fifth largest proven hydrocarbon reserves in the world, and it's the government's job to provide for us. One of the things that I think is important to grasp is that there aren't really Middle Eastern governments that take what Western governments would consider orthodox economic views of, of how the economy should work. Both the poor countries, which are still influenced by the Arab socialism in the 1960s, and the wealthier countries, which have a sort of paternalistic, monarchic approach to the citizenry, both are committed to a more socialist style of supporting the economy. Both have traditions of having very large public sectors and relatively weak private sectors. And so from rich to poor in the region, there is a government commitment to being engaged in markets for the good of the citizenry and pulling out of that commitment is something which sometimes is seen as political betrayal, although governments also are beginning to feel that some parts of it may be necessary. But they're starting from a very different place, a very different sense of what the government's responsibility is. I think for a lot of governments, the idea of providing the services and subsidizing them was seen as a sign of their modernity. And there's a way in which they're just living in a very different place in terms of understanding the government role in society than we are. And I think we often don't quite empathize with that because we're in a very different place. Can you give examples about that, John? Because, you know, the states in the Middle East have different approaches, right? You know, more broadly, if you think about higher education, I mean, higher education in the United States can be a huge expense, whether supported by individual states or paid for by individual families. The sense in the Middle East is higher education is essentially free. It is part of the government's pact with its people to educate the people. And that's part of the government's modernity. It's something people aspire to. It might not be on a level of top international schools, but people can't afford top international schools. And I think this sort of sense of 
what does the government owe me? And the sense that the government has to provide the service, even if it doesn't provide it at the top level, is pervasive throughout the region in wealthy and poor states alike. And it's true even in the Gulf, where the universities are not great for the most part, but people still want to go to the local universities. The number of people who go to U.S. universities, British universities, remains relatively small. So many of these states, or like the case for subsidies, is very prevalent across the Middle East. And there's a lot of resistance to reform or looking into subsidies to reform them. Why is there such resistance? If we're going to talk about who benefits from continuing the status quo, do we have a general idea? Yes. I mean, I think I said a bit earlier on that it's the wealthiest who benefit disproportionately from many subsidies because they consume more. I think also it's important to think about the middle classes and the middle classes in a lot of these countries maybe don't have the same financial need for subsidies, but certainly benefit from them and view them as a critical part of their relationship with the government. And so as governments do start thinking about reforming, I think the middle classes are a really key, you know, faction for them to think about and try and bring along with the process. And trust is a very important theme here. We've talked about trust quite a lot in this program as it comes to shifting systems and how governments can try and, you know, bring their people along with them as they conduct reforms. But I think it is really important for people, especially middle classes, to think that the governments are going to provide for them in some way. They're going to shelter them from some of the most painful impacts of lifting subsidies and that another system might actually benefit them, that maybe the money that the government saves on subsidies could be better spent on some other kind of public spending or public services. And so citizen engagement is really important here. And there are ways that governments, I think, can do this better and can do this worse. And actually lifting subsidies is often maybe should be the last step in the process rather than the first. When we're talking about electricity provision, there are things that governments can do to try and manage consumption first. So in the interview, Alia Safar said that one of the really key under-discussed issues for electricity usage is electricity energy efficiency. And so if, you know, governments provided support for people to insulate their homes or whatnot, that would cut down their electricity usage a lot. They would then therefore suffer the consequences of lifting subsidies less. So I think it's a process that involves really bringing the people along and showing them the benefits. Well, one of the challenges of the middle class is that the nature of being middle class and the nature of this growing middle class in a lot of the Arab world is people want to spend more. That part of the way they show they're part of the middle class is their expenditures go up. They're spending more on clothing. They're spending more on cars. They're spending more on all kinds of conspicuous consumption. And when you pull back the subsidies, you're inhibiting their ability to feel like they are part of the middle class. You're inhibiting their ability to feel like they are benefiting. So how you sequence this and how you work the transition is actually extraordinarily hard because part of what people are looking for is I have that entitlement which enables me to be middle class. And if I don't have the entitlement, I will fall back into the lower class from which I've climbed out. 
And for the lower classes as well, and for poorer families, another really big issue here is how do governments compensate? How do they even begin to implement a more targeted system when so many of these people are unbanked? How do you do cash transfers so that people can afford their electricity bills if lots of these people don't have access to banks or, you know, maybe aren't on registers and maybe the governments don't have good data on who these people even are. So this is something that Lebanon is is going through right now. The crisis has forced the government to basically give up on, on subsidies and something the World Bank is working on is trying to build these data sets so that they can target those families really in need. This is definitely a very interesting thread that I would love to keep pulling out, but bringing it back to the energy transition in the Middle East's place within it, what kind of challenges do you envision the region might face as the global community moves towards 2050? Net zero goals. So I think it's probably helpful to recap on the different reasons that subsidies exist in these different countries. And if we agree that a rationalization of energy prices is critical to the energy transition, then we need to have a really targeted approach for the different countries in the region and think about why it is that they have subsidies, how that fits into the political economy. And in some poorer countries, as we've said, it's to to really try and support the very poorest from from real awful poverty. And on the other side, for the wealthier countries, it's a really critical part of the social contract. So trying to move these and to get to the same direction, I think, of gradual lifting of subsidies will require very different approaches for those different countries and will be painful in different ways for governments as they try to implement them. And with that, this has been a great conversation. Thank you both for your time. And I look forward to having more interesting talks with you in the future. Thanks, Lebanon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website. And you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.